You're listening to Reading Glasses, a show about book culture and literary life designed to help you read better. I'm author and book devourer Mallory O'Mara. And I'm Bria Grant, filmmaker and e-reader. This episode, we're diving into how publishers choose the different fonts and margins in books with special guest Lauren Panapinto, creative director of Orbit, which is... Also one of Mallory's best friends. And y'all, we're dating into the nerdy <laughs> shit in this episode. So get ready. Pull out your little oh, nerd yeah. glasses. Those are next to your reading glasses. There's the reading glasses and then there's <laughs> some nerd glasses right next to them. Because we're going to talk about fonts, margins, all the things that y'all want to talk about. Um, yes. It's going to be a great. One. And we took a bunch of listener questions for Lauren yes. for this episode. So, uh, so stay tuned for that. But first, what are you reading, Bria? I'm reading uh, Fives by Mary Roach, which... Uh, Little known fact about me, I went, there was, for a while, it was very popular uh, um, series on television, or I don't know if it was on television, but there was a When Animals Attack type series, and people would send me these videos because I, as long as the people didn't get hurt, if like a goose chases someone down, I was like, this is very funny. I just could not get over how funny (laughs) it is to see someone like trying to dodge a bird or something, or you like, (laughs) yeah, just... I don't know. It's just funny. Um, but I, uh, this one is uh, about uh, when animals break the law and like what they do. And like there's a whole fir- first part is about bears and how bears get into places they're not supposed to be in Colorado in people's kitchens. They'll just walk in and open a refrigerator. And it's, it. I mean, uh, definitely trigger warnings for people who, uh, for if, if you're sensitive to animals getting killed for things like that or being put down. Then she also like goes to India and is like, oh, look at how differently they treat the animals here. But she doesn't demonize anyone, which I also appreciate. Um, yeah. Or the animals. It's just like, here's what's happening. Um, here's how people are dealing with it in different cultures. Um, but it's really great. What, what are you reading, Molly? I am reading another 2021 book that you read um, and that a bunch of our glassers liked. Um, it's The Memory Theater by Karen Tidbeck. Uh, this was almost on my top 10. I yeah. just felt like it had been a while since I read it. And I feel like that, that unfortunately sometimes counts against books. I feel bad about that. But uh, we both love this author. Yes. Uh, Karen Tibbeck's amazing. They're, they're just such a smart writer. Um, and I, I, I guess it was, this book is not what I expected because after Amaka, which is a book that we both were fucking obsessed with, I was expecting something sci-fi. And this book is like very much a fantasy book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is about, um, basically these characters that live in what we would call like the realm of fairy, you know, and, uh, they are trapped. They're human characters. One of them is sort of human and it's, she's sort of, they're, they're sort of trapped in serving these like fae like the fairy folk and they're and the, all the fairy folk have just like basically gone mad and all they do every day is just like throw these big weird parties and these poor like trapped humans have to serve them and then eventually the, the humans get eaten this is not a spoiler um and so th- these two characters are like well this sucks we got to get out of here and it's about them like trying to figure out how to break open this fairy world and escape from there and like uh what i would actually say that if you love um Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. You would love this book because there is a traveling theater troupe that kind yeah. of moves between the worlds uh, that is in this book. And it's just, it's so dreamy and so surreal, but really, really fun. If you're looking for a fantasy book that isn't like swords and sorcery, but um, is more, you know, again, like it's very much like Station Eleven. Uh, I think you will really, really like this. So that is The Memory Theater by Karen Tidbeck. And mine is Fuzz by Mary Roach. So we want to take a moment to share some listener feedback. Michelle wrote in about Christmas gifts. 
Hi, I just listened to your Christmas roundup and wanted to offer as a fellow reader who often already has bought or borrowed from the library all the books that compel me to buy or borrow them, that my book list always contains books that I might like or which are recommended by a really trusted source but still haven't caught in my book buying gut. I love, love, love having a new book on Christmas to open and read. So this year, I'm going to share with my family a list of these books that keep making it to my want list but never seem to make it to really want. I'll be surprised (laughs) and get a book I wouldn't have haven't anyway bought for myself. That is a good idea. That is a great idea. I think telling people exactly what you want is always a good idea. Yes. I'm horrible at giving gifts, so I always appreciate it. I love it when <laughs> you ask someone what they want for Christmas and they just fucking tell you, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, 100%. Um, So Jody wrote in and said, I just finished your episode on holiday gift ideas. One thing I like to ask for is the person getting me the gift for a copy of their favorite book. Oh, I like that. Best case scenario, I like it too. We can talk about it later. Worst case scenario, I don't like it and I should never mention it again. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. That is a really, really fun thing. I like that. That'd be a really fun thing to do with like at at your work or for like um, your book club or something. Just get everyone else. Everyone gets them, buys a copy of their favorite book and then swaps it. I love that. That's great. Pre-staddy for everybody. For me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Michelle wrote in, different Michelle. This is Michelle with two L's. First Michelle Got was it. Michelle with one L. Uh, wrote in with a wheelhouse, which is memoirs featuring mental illness, palpable dark settings, slice of life literary fiction, non-World War II historical fiction, stories that involve crime. <laughs> Anti-World War II. Don't give me anything in no the voice. No dad books. No dad books. Um, Stories that involve crime, fiction or nonfiction, nonfiction about the human brain, oh, mouthwatering de- descriptions of food, and Did nature I write this writing. In? <laughs> <laughs> this is very Bria. Uh, and nature writing that blows my mind and shows me how amazing our planet is. Fantastic. Uh, you can email us at readingglassespodcast at gmail.com if you want a list of all the books we talk about on the show delivered to your inbox every month. You can sign up for our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. Some bookmarks from us. First off, folks, we are taking a week off from Christmas. There are five Thursdays in this month. So uh, Maximum Fun always asks us if we want to take a week off. And we do. We've been working really hard this year. We've done a lot of stuff for the show and we are taking a week off. Um, we will be back the week after Christmas and the week before Christmas. The week before Christmas next week, we're doing our uh, best books of the year episode. So so uh, that's you'll have two weeks to, to to sit in it and read it and listen to it and, and check out those books. Uh, also, for me, I just want to say, folks, on December 14th, very close to when this episode comes out, I am doing a special event with the San Francisco Public Library, but not at the San Francisco Public Library, because oh. the San Francisco Public Library rented out the champagne room at the Oasis Drag Bar in San Francisco. So Sounds I'm going to do a talk with, about girly drinks there uh, at, a, at a drag bar. It is going to be absolutely fun. Uh, there are no tickets, so just show up at the bar. Um, again, it's in the champagne room. I'm really, really excited. So it's December 14th. The event starts at 7 p.m. I'm going to be signing books and giving away koozies and fun girly drink stuff. I'm really excited to do this. It's going to be a blast. Um, we also want to remind folks, because a lot of folks are getting these, as, giving these as gifts or getting them for themselves, that we have our, a link for Libro FM gift memberships. If you cl- go in the show notes uh, and click on the Libro FM link, uh, we have uh, our, a special link that... Um, if that we get paid if you get a Libro FM membership and you get a free audiobook when you sign up for one. So everybody wins. We help we get to feed our animals. You get a free audiobook. Uh we love working with Libro FM and um we just think they're uh, they're on our uh 
uh, bookish gifts episode uh, this year because we think getting a Libro FM membership for someone for Christmas is fantastic. Also, if you're listening to this, we're already in December and you're starting to panic because uh, it's hard to get things shipped and you don't know what to get that bookish friend in your life. Libro FM is great because you don't have to ship it. It's just something that happens electronically can pop into your loved one's uh, inbox Christmas morning or whenever you want to give it to them. It really makes a fantastic gift and we have our own link for it. So check that out in the show notes. Uh, so before we talk to Lauren Panapinto about fonts and margins, we're going to take a quick break. Reading Glasses is sponsored in part this week by StoryWorth. This holiday season, give your loved ones a gift that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship you share. Gift them StoryWorth. Bria, we love StoryWorth. We really do. And if you're sitting there at home going, ooh, what am I going to get this person? I don't really know what to get them. And it's last minute. I don't know. Shipping is hard. StoryWorth is perfect. You can go and sign up for it today. Because what is StoryWorth? Mallory, tell people how StoryWorth works. So what it is, is every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice, which is, that's one of my favorite parts, is you get to choose what they're getting asked from a vast pool of possible options, and each prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask. Like, you know, just things you don't normally talk about with your mom or your cousin or your grandma. What's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? Um, we... Jeremy and I got his mom's story worth a few years ago and Jeremy got to pick all the questions and you, you can even write the questions if you want. Um, and they were really, really cool. And then after what happens is after one whole year, StoryWorth compiles all those stories and the, from the questions that you asked, including photos that you pick into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. It is such a cool gift. And Bria, I mean, you got one for your mom and then your mom got one for her whole family. She she bought one for her whole family. It, it was a really great gift and it's awesome because you get to learn things about people that you haven't, uh, that you may not have known. Um, and, it, and it's nice because it doesn't matter where someone is, you can connect with them no matter how far apart you are. So with StoryWorth, you're giving a thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. So go to storyworth.com slash glasses to save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash glasses to save $10 on that first purchase. And remember, this doesn't. there's no shipping. This is a gift that can happen instantaneously. So if you, again, are panicking because you're trying to think of a gift for your grandmother or a family member that are, probably already has all the things that they need and you don't know what to get them, you don't want to ship something, you don't want to go to the post office because no one wants to go to the post office in December, this is something that you can do very quickly and it is such a meaningful gift. It's storyworth.com slash glasses. 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 Well, Manolo, we have a show to promote. It's called Dr. Game Show. It's a family-friendly podcast where listeners submit games and we play them with callers from around the world. Oh, sounds good. New episodes uh, happen every other Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. It's a, it's a fast and loose oasis of absurd innocence and naivete. And Are you writing a poem? No, and just saying things from my memory. And uh, it's a nice break from reality. <laughs> Is that, are we allowed to say that? I don't know. It sounds bad. It comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. It does not. <laughs> Come for the games and stay for the chaos.
this week, we're talking about design work, inside print books, fonts, font sizes, margins, line spacings. Who makes the decisions about all these details? I am extra excited to have Orbit Books creative director Lauren Panapinto here with us today to tell us all about it. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my God, my pleasure. I was I was just saying that, you know, I talk to you so much in real life. It's kind of like, I have to be careful that I don't just slip into normal talking about our day. Like I have to put my professional Yes. On. Is this your professional voice? This is your professional voice? I, I honestly, it's more about, it's less about the voice and more about whenever I do a podcast or anything, like in publishing, you're working so far in advance. So I really have to think about what I can't say in whatever given like interview or anything I'm doing. So now it's double because it's what I can't say because Orbit hasn't announced it yet. And what I can't say because of just, you know, like, Best friend stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, the, that's the other thing. It's the uh, most important thing is Lauren's my best friend. Uh, but before yeah. we get into the episode, I just want to bra- let's brag a little bit and talk about the cool things that Lauren's done. Uh, behind, oh, we're recording with Lauren right now. Behind her, Lauren has worked on art and creative, creatively directed the covers for The Expanse books, Nor K. Jemison's books, the new illustrated Witcher book that's coming out, 10,000 Doors of January, a lot of favorite Glasser books. Lauren has made them look amazing and is in charge of those covers. Uh, are there any covers that you want to brag about? Um, I I mean, I I just realized that I checked the calendar and I've been working at Orbit for 13 years now. Oh my God. Um, wow. Which is insane, but also <laughs> means, and, and for people that, you know, haven't, I think we did this like a while ago, but a creative director doesn't necessarily design every single cover, but we are in charge of making sure that all of the covers in our division or imprint, in my case, Orbit Books, um, are not only good, but kind of look and feel like Orbit Books should and things like that. So some things I, I design directly. So like Nora Jemison's books, I've always designed completely you know, me designing the covers. Uh, but there's a lot of covers that either people on my team are designing, like Lisa Pompilio, who's fantastic, designed the the Alex Harrow covers. Um, and I'm kind of directing those, or a lot of times we use freelance artists and things like that. So, um, so yeah, at this point, if you walk into like a science fiction and fantasy section of a bookstore, it's getting really creepy because I've touched in some way or been responsible for like <laughs> a fifth to a, a quarter of the books in that whole wow. section. You know? It's really weird. It's like ghosts of, you know, book covers past. <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of books, before we get into things, can I ask you the most important question? What are you reading? Yes, and now it's my turn to brag. Um, (laughs) I know these aren't obviously uh, aired on the same day they're recorded, but we're recording on Repeal Day, which I thought was a great excuse to read. I have already read Reading Glasses, uh, Reading Glasses, I've already read Girly Drinks in a few different, um, uh, you know, versions because I was privileged enough to read uh, Girly Drinks while Mallory was working on it. Lauren is my first reader. Lauren looks at, <laughs> Lauren gets to look at my books before anybody else does. But I, I haven't got, I, you know, I have the final copy and then I hadn't read the final, final, final copy yet. So it's repeal day. So I started reading oh, it this Lauren, morning. thank you. And it's fantastic. And for people that don't know, repeal day in the United States is, uh, we had, uh, 
liquor was illegal, alcohol was illegal for a while. And then everybody realized for many reasons, especially you will know if you read Girly Drinks that it was a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. And um, it got repealed on December 5th. Yay. Oh, I will be drinking cocktails later. I will also be drinking cocktails nice. later. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're really excited. This was actually a listener request episode and I knew who else better to come on to talk about it. So walk us through this. We're talking about so the cool design things inside books, not so much the covers, but the interior. It's, so it's the art department that makes those choices, right? It's not the editor. It's not the author. Well, yes and no. I mean, it. what we're talking about, uh, at least in my head, is uh, both the interiors, uh, so interior layouts, anything that goes inside the book, maps, chapter ornaments, um, fancy things you do with fonts, different sections, anything designy that goes inside. But also we were talking, I know we have a bunch of questions about when you have a hardcover and you take the jacket off, that what we call that, you know, undercover is a case. So the case has colors to it. It might be fabric or it might be paper and it has foil stamping on it, all of those kind of things too. So um, all of that is, I would say, is under the purview of the art department to decide when it's kind of special or, uh, you know, when something extra is being done. So um, not every book, I think for every, and we're not talking about fancy special edition books, but for prose books, um, standard kind of books, uh, whether they're paperback or hardcover, um, sometimes it, it can be, it's more of a team thing. So the editor might want something special on the inside or the author might ask for something special on the inside. Or what happens most of the time, honestly, is the art department in the process of doing the cover says, oh, this ornament or this piece of the cover would look really cool as a chapter ornament. Let's give it to the interior designs department. So there's an interior design group. And in some publishers, it's in-house. In some publishers, it's out of house, um, you know, but they're called compositors. And uh, they take the uh, all of the material, they take the manuscript, they take um, any bits that the art department gives them, maps, chapter ornaments, things like that. And uh, they will lay out the inside of the book. Um, again, this is for prose books, for kids books, it's it's much more hands-on for picture books, for cookbooks, things like this. But we're talking about mostly like reading prose books. Um, so we kind of give them all the bits and pieces and, uh, or, you know, in the case of a more special edition, I designed kind of the entire interior of the, like the Witcher Illustrated, the Last Wish Illustrated that's coming out. So it's kind of up to the editor and author and art department to be like, hey, this could be cool. Can we do this? And then we just do. <laughs> so one of the things we get asked a lot, and we got a bunch of emails about this and, and listener questions is, so you, so who's choosing those fonts and how, how does the kind of the, the consensus come together of like how, what font we're going to use and how, what, what the size of the font is? Is it, is it, you know, depending on how long the book is, like the longer the book, the smaller the, the, the font? Yeah. You're always starting from every every house has about two or three kind of base templates for what the interior looks like. And that will have been decided by, you know, usually the publisher and the creative director, you know, how big the margins are, you know, how much space you like between lines, um, what fonts you like. I mean, there's there's basic scientific knowledge about what font sizes are comfortable to read legibly, what font sizes start to feel like a kid's book or a large size, a large print book or things like that. So we know kind of roughly. And then um, in style, you know, uh, serif fonts tend to be a little easier to read in text than sans serif fonts. You know, I think if you've opened a book and you see like a sans serif font, serifs are the little feet 
on uh, the mm-hmm. ends of letters. So, you know, Helvetica is a very well-known sans serif, lack of serif font. And they would be really weird if you read like a whole book in a sans serif font. You'd feel like it was like maybe a design book or a more modern book. So usually they're serif fonts. And then every house just kind of has a couple that they like, you know. Um, we use a different one. We use different base fonts for our science fiction versus fantasy books. You know, it just gives a little subtle feel a little bit of difference. Um, but usually imprints or divisions have a couple of base templates and then they'll change them up a little bit depending on what that editor asked for. What we really try to do is match, you know, kind of the, you know, not the base text font, but the chapter opener fonts, the title page, all of that stuff. We try to match the cover if the cover is done early enough that we can. If not, which happens a lot, because uh, <laughs> books are, you know, in process for a year or more before, you know, they're published. Uh, if we don't know, then, you know, I might say to interior, you know, the production editors are the one that kind of uh, orchestrates all of this. So I'll, I might say to the production editor, we don't have the cover file yet, but we know it's going to be like a super fantasy kind of serif font. So, you know, use Jupiter or use Orpheus or, you know, I have about like 10,000 fonts in my head. I can't remember. <laughs> oh my God. Day, but like, I know fonts. <laughs> You know. oh, that's some sort of that's a weird superhero uh, uh, power to like. Yeah. I'm font man. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, friends of mine like it. Like when we're in restaurants, uh, in in a world where we were all sitting in restaurants a lot, and they'd be like, "Oh, what what font is this menu? What font is this menu?" I'd be like, "I'd hang my head and I'd be like, you know, I don't know every font, uh, yeah. but you know <laughs> it. <laughs> so, Bria." Question, speaking of fonts and sizes, as an e-reader, do you, I know I know you can set a preferred font and size. What do you set your Kindle to? You know, I had to look this up because I'm just using the Kindle, Lauren, you'd be very disappointed. I use whatever was given to me. <laughs> whatever font was given to me, I looked it up. It's called Bookerly. Is that a real <laughs> font? Is that something Kindle made up? <laughs> I don't know. It's a, Is that a real font, Lauren? <laughs> I mean, it, if it exists, it's a real font, but okay. it's, it's, I'm sure it's proprietary to Kindle because I've never yeah, heard of it. Yeah, I never had heard of it before, before either. Um, you can set it for different fonts. And I have moved up in the, the font size world recently because <laughs> I um, have a little bit of trouble reading up close. I'm not quite at reading glasses level, but like when it's too small, it hurts my eyes. So I'm at a seven right now, which is a specific thing on Kindle too. It has no, I don't think right, there's any yeah, correlation yeah. with like, Kindle readers will be like, oh, seven. But um, I think it has no correlation with, you know, any other, uh, nor- the universal world of a font size, I see. Well, strangely, even in print sizes, uh, like a, a 10 point in Gotham is not going to be the same size as a 10 point in Bembo or a 10 point ah. in like that it's very it's wildly different so um it can screw with us quite a bit ah interesting yeah i um i actually got uh i don't know if they can do this on uh kindle because i've never had a kindle but on the recommendation of a certain podcast called reading glasses (laughs) i bought a kobo recently yay um yay to read manuscripts and things uh i was always reading on my phone and it was kind of I'm, Not I am getting old. <laughs> getting read. Phone reading is tough. Um, Phone reading is tough. Yeah. So I uh, I realized you could change the line spacing mm-hmm. in between the lines, which is actually called letting. 
and L-E-A-D-I-N-G. And it's called leading, interestingly, graphic design nerd moment, because in the old days when we were setting metal type, like for newspapers or whatever, you'd actually have little strips of lead that you'd put in between the the lines of text. So wow. the more lead you added, the more leading it had anyway. But on a Kobo and for most normal people, it's just called line spacing. And, and that really helps the legibility as well. So yes. you might not need bigger font if you have more line spacing. Yeah, I always gravitate towards books with... Nice fonts for sure, but bigger print. Uh, I've said on the show before that it makes me feel like I'm reading faster because <laughs> I'm like, wow, look at I'm just flying through these pages. This page only took me. Well, we, you mentioned it. You mentioned it earlier, but the actual decision. So once we have those base templates, we can alter the size of the font, the, the space between the font, the the you know, the uh, margins, how much empty space is in there. And also the paper stock, which we haven't talked about yet, to make a book feel either bigger or smaller for a certain reason. Like you guys, you know, you guys know in fantasy, everybody loves a honker or like a certain book. If you want a big, epic world fantasy book to feel like a honker, sometimes they come in too big and we need to lessen the margins and lessen the spacing so that we make it a little smaller so it literally fits in paper because you can only have so much paper in a, in a, in a trade paperback say before it rips itself apart just under the force of its own gravity. Um, And then, or vice versa, if we want a book to feel like more of a honker, we Mm. will give it a little more space. It's kind of like when you were writing term papers in college. (laughs) I will say, I always set my Kobo to a pretty big font, but with narrow, more narrow line spacing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I just like it like that. And that's, I, I, Bri, I don't know if Kindle does it, but I do like like being able to because you know every every ebook looks different, and if I make the font size really big, but then the line spacing is huge, I'm like, no, I feel like I'm reading a, a picture book right now. I have to make yeah, it more yeah. narrow. Um, so, Lauren, you mentioned earlier what a chapter you said chapter ornaments. I don't know what that is, and I'm sure that some of our listeners oh, okay. don't. So Let us clue us in here. Um, so sometimes there's art inside the book. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I work in fantasy sci-fi almost exclusively. So in the front of the book, you'll have, um, generally when you start, there's like a blank page or whatever, and there's a copyright page and there's a title page. So the title page is usually what the cover font looks like, but it's just the title and the author name and usually the logo of the publisher. So like Orbit Books or whatnot. Um, sometimes there's half title pages. If you really want to like, you're really trying to add, add space or make it fancy so that you'll see a page, you'll turn a page and it'll just be the title and author. And then you'll turn it again. It'll be the title, author, subtitle, logo, you know, whatever. Um, and these are all holdovers from, you know, ye old ancient days of, of publishing. Um, when every book was a collector's item. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you can have just a title page, you can have a title page and a half title page. But then, you know, in the front, if you have, say, a map or any kind of diagrams or stuff that kind of goes in the front. And then, you know, if there's acknowledgement, whatever. But if there's art in between, like if there's chapter sections and there's a page that I was thinking recently, I think the last one we did was um, Once in Future Witches by Alex Harrow. Lisa designed entire pages for, because it's broken up into, I think, three or four parts. Um, and then there's chapters within those parts. So for each part, there's a page that's completely designed in like cool Victorian type. Um, we give those to the compositors to stick in. But a chapter ornament is, you know, when you turn the page and it's like chapter one, but if there's a little icon or something in there, um, sometimes it'll be, you know, I work in fantasy. So it'll be like a sword or a wand or something. If they're shifting point of view characters, a lot of times we'll make the point of view character have their own icon. So it's kind of this subtle, um, 
viewer, uh, like reader direction. Like, oh, this is the sword guy. And later we'll have like the, the wand guy. Like, <laughs> like, I desperately want to read a book about sword guy and wand guy becoming, yeah. be- becoming best friends. Um, <laughs> so before we talk more about book interior design choices, we're going to take a quick break. Reading Glasses is sponsored in part this week by my best friend, Soylent. Soylent is the original food tech company that makes delicious and nutritious nutrition products in convenient formats. I am obsessed with their complete meal shake. It's very convenient. It does come in a powder format, but you can also get the ready-to-drink shake, which I do. It's got 20 grams of plant-based protein, 39 essential nutrients, healthy fats, 400 calories of slower-burning carbs, and it means that I don't have to cook or clean and that I don't go hungry because I don't feel like cooking in the morning. But you like the squares. I like the little squares because they are 100 calories. You can throw them in your bag. You can eat them at any time. Or if you just want a little special chocolate treat at any point (laughs) in the day or after meal but you know what we never talk about they also have an energy drink they have a they have a tip it's not your typical energy drink they have an energy drink that gives you energy it has all these b vitamins in it um and it has a bunch of protein in it to keep so it's not like a you're drinking just like you know some other crappy energy drink this one has protein (laughs) in it so it also uh it's like drink it's also like having a meal it's like it'll make you full which is awesome Yes. The, my boyfriend, Jeremy, uh, is likes the energy drinks. He has them in the morning before he writes. They're really fantastic. We just, we love Soylent. It's the quickest, easiest meal on the planet. There's no cooking, there's no cleanup, and it's made from U.S. grown, sustainably sourced ingredients, which means that it's good for you and good for the planet. It is just healthy, fast food, basically. No drive-through required. Uh, so you go to Soylent.com slash glasses and use code glasses to get 20% off your first order. That's Soylent.com slash glasses and code glasses to get 20% off your first order. Soylent.com slash glasses. Glasses. Look, it's a rough world out there, especially lately. I get it. So let's take care of our minds as best we can. I'm John Moe, host of Depression Mode with John Moe. Every week, I talk with comedians, actors, writers, musicians, doctors, therapists, and everyday folks about the obstacles that our world and our brains throw in front of us. Depression, anxiety, traumatic stress, all those mental health challenges that are way more common and more treatable than you might think. The first time I went to therapy, I was so ashamed, and I was like, I can't believe I gotta go into therapy. Like, I thought I could be a man, and Humphrey Bogart was never in therapy. And then my dad said, yeah, but he smoked a carton of cigarettes a day. Give your mind a break, give yourself a break, and join me for Depression Mode with John Moe. Okay. All right. We are back with Lauren Panapinto of Orbit Books, giving us some insight about how books are designed between the covers. So Lauren, let's start talking about some cool, fancy stuff. So some books have started coming out printed with colored ink. That's something that you and I have talked about a a bunch because I, first time I saw it, I immediately texted you and was like, look, this book is green. Uh, (laughs) Do you think more publishers are going to try stuff like that out? Well, it's interesting. I think the, um, it really has a lot to do with how involved the kind of the art department is with the printing and the manufacturing folks in-house because we deal with them very directly for the covers, but a lot of times the interiors are happening on a parallel track, you know, and we're not, 
necessarily keeping track. Um, it all comes down to kind of not just money, but availability of presses. So we've all been hearing about, um, you know, supply chain issues and there being not enough book printers in the United States and things like that. Um, so uh, a book interior prints on a one color press. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of presses that, you know, shoot out very quickly, one color, usually it's black, obviously, um, the default. Um, you can change that one color to another color. Uh, you can make it, I know there was a book, I forget the name, but uh, some Icelandic kind of book, but it, it happened in, in dark green. Yes, that was that you uh, the Museum of Wales You'll Never See. That, that was the one I, t- I was like, Lauren, look, ah. it's green on the inside. Yeah, no, it's super cool. So it's not any extra money to do, uh, change that one color, um, but it has to be a flat color. So uh, it, it, it has to be one color out of the jar. You can't mix colors. So um, if you go up, then you, you end up on a four color press and there's a lot less of those. So like anything with four colors inside, photos, things like that happen mm-hmm. on a four color press. So it's very difficult to, to make a, a one color kind of prose book go on a four color press because it costs a lot more money. It takes a lot more time. The problem is also registering the type. So type all always has to be in one flat color because if you try to make it like CMYK on a, like in a four color press it works, but like, you know, you get those ghosts. Have you ever seen like a misprinted page and there's like a oh, misregistered? Yeah. Happens a lot in magazines more than books, um, but there's like a ghost image. So you never want the entire interior of a book, you know, re- a prose book to to have like a weird ghost registration issue. So I actually ran into that with um, The Last Wish Illustrated Edition. I wanted to make some sections of the text maroon because we printed the interior as two color. All of the interior illustrations and things are two color, red and black. So I was like, oh, and even me who's been in this industry so long, you know, I'm like, oh, well, we can make some some text maroon. We can make some text red, some text black and some text maroon and that would be great. Mm-hmm. And then I realized in, in, in talking to the printer, they were like, well, we're never going to, we're not going to be able to register that close enough that we can guarantee that's not going to be a little ghosty. So you can do it on big text. You could do it on images, but you don't want to do it on the reading text because you want that to be super crisp. So um, it's kind of a press availability and money thing, but you can only swap out that one color to a different color. And I think you'll see more of that. Um, but with supply chain and, and printer availability being a problem, you're not going to see a lot of usually one color books going to two color because that's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of supply chain things, one of the questions that uh, we had from the listeners and because there's a lot of other cool stuff inside, there's fancy end papers and the uh, foil mm-hmm. stamping on the hardcover casing. Like how, what, what decides what, books get those and not? Is it just like a money issue? Like how to, how does, wh- why do some books get all the extras and, uh, and some are just more, uh, more plain? Um, I think it, I mean, it's, oh, there's always some things that are money things, you know, how much budget there is, you know, but, but it's funny. Some things are just uh, choice and availability. So, you know, if you look at a hardcover, sometimes they're all one color. And I mean, the actual case, like the, the hardcover part of a, the inside of a hardcover under the jacket, um, whether that's one color or two colors, sometimes the spine is a different color than the body. That makes no difference in price. It's just different kinds of paper, um, whether you want it to be one color or two color. But uh, people generally feel, and again, a lot of this stuff is subconscious. You're not like looking at a hardcover and being, oh, that spine is a different color. It feels more literary, you know? <laughs> um, 
but it kind of is almost like, you know, elbow pads on a jacket on like a professor's jacket makes you, makes it feel more academic. So like the spine being a different (laughs) color than the body, the front and back, um, has more of a literary feel. So sometimes you want that and sometimes you don't. Um, the, uh, Another thing that doesn't cost any money is, and it's just about people deciding is deckled edges. So when the edges That was another rough. question because yeah. deckled edges are a big, uh, they're a hot button issue in the reading community. I love deckled mm-hmm. edges. Some people hate me them, too. but I was, yeah. I was really surprised. I didn't know. I remember Lauren, you telling me that it doesn't cost any, it's just like, no, it's no money. You know, it's, you just decide whether yeah, or not no. you get them. Deckled edges is actually how books are made. Every book has a deckled edge until it's trimmed. Right. So if you just leave it, deckled <laughs> edge, um, then no, it doesn't cost any more money as opposed to trimming the pa- the book's pages together. There are some considerations, though. If you have art on the inside, and again, this was something we ran into with the Alex Harrow, uh, Once in Future Witches, is um, you can't have interior art bleed off the page and also have a deckled edge. So it, that can yeah. be a little strange because the decals go past the bleed area of the printing page. It's very... We won't get the technical, but it doesn't actually cost any money. But again, we know as publishers that some people hate a deckled edge. Some people love a deckled edge. Same thing with French flaps. Like if you put. Oh, I love uh, a French flap, which sounds so dirty, but I love a French flap. French flaps. (laughs) Um, I don't don't know why they're called French flaps. That would be a good question. But what a French flap is, is it's like jackets have flaps because they wrap around the hardcover but if you do a flap on a trade paperback for some reason it's called a french flap and you usually they usually paired up if you have a french flap you usually have deckled edges Hmm. um but you can do deckled edges on paperbacks and not have a french flap and orbit's actually one of the only people that do that we do that sometimes or like because i had seen it together so for so many so, so prevalently um or universally that i asked the printer once I was like, do we have to have a French flap if we have deckled edges on a paperback? And they're like, no, yeah. it's fine. It's funny that they go together. So we've been hearing a lot about the supply chain issues. What, have you been affected by that? Does it mean we're, everything's going to be written on, you know, leaves from now on? Can we not get paper? <laughs> like what, what's happening with that? Um, yes, the supply chain is my entire life currently. Is it? <laughs> yeah, no, Am I bringing it? Is it a source subject? But it's also, I think everybody, people aren't realizing too that um, supply chain is a big, gigantic issue. On one end, it's like, do we have enough paper? You know, because that was another enough- question: is what do, who chooses what paper gets printed on? Mm. Like, why are books mm. floppier than other books? Like, what? So, I'm assuming the su- yeah. supply chain Floppy. issue is, is definitely yeah. affecting the kind of paper that that you guys can use. Yeah, when when we did, and again, like books have standard paper stock, so like all of Hachette books, so all of the divisions and houses within Hachette all kind of use the same default paper stock, and our printers know that you know, and it's probably most of the printers. Like, there's default paper stocks. There are ones you can do that are then, so there's a default, just like the interior design. And then if you need something special, you have to order it. So, um, for certain, obviously like art books and cookbooks and stuff, they have a different kind of default stock. Um, but like for the Witcher illustrated, uh, the last wish illustrated, because there were illustrations and two colors of ink, we wanted to make sure that there was no show through on the paper. Um, so we didn't want to have much thicker paper, but we wanted less show through. So there are papers that have less bleed hmm. through, um, and are, the paper ended up being a little brighter white. So you could see the illustration better because regular paper is kind of a little off white. Um, 
so, but we had to make sure and get that order in way in advance. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that, that affects things. So, so supply chain is, is literally the supply of things. And there have been times that, um, stock in foils and things have been out and you have to pick different stuff and swap it in. And, and the reader wouldn't necessarily know that, you know, uh, it was just a, a, the, the pool of options has been a little smaller and things. Um, on the other side, uh, again, the supply chain quote unquote issue is, um, how much, uh, how much printers in the United States and outside the United States can physically print stuff. There's, you know, only so many printers, book printing happening in the country and in other countries and the, the down to the second, um, scheduling of how long a book takes to print, how many print copies there are, how many books in a print run, things like that have been so scrutinized. And I mean, God bless my, my manufacturing folks at Hachette because they're, you know, it's kind of almost, you know, those, those old movies of like how the, the stock market used to run, like in the old <laughs> Everyone running around fl- yelling at each other. <laughs> it's kind of what it's like. It's like, I got some book files over here. I'm ready to go, you know? <laughs> the art departments are trying to get covers done earlier and earlier and the interiors done earlier and earlier. So when there's an opening at a press, we can just jump in there, but things are moving. Um, on sale dates are being shifted. And then on the other side, there's, there's shipping issues. So, you know, like where getting stuff to the warehouse and out to the retailers is taking more time. So kind of at every stage of the process, it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. But also it's what I think is being left out of a lot of these conversations is it's also a, a, I'm not saying supply chain issues is a good problem to have, but during the pandemic, people have been buying more books, more print books than they have in a long time. So it's also a problem of quantity. It's not just that we're getting less of these things and there's less printing to be had. It's that we're trying to do more with less at the same time. So that's kind of why it's, so it's, so it's good news. And yeah, we, we like people buying more books. Uh, one of the big questions that, um, that people have, uh, is how much all these cool things and how much control do authors have? And really is, I know as an author, it's depends. The answer is it depends. It depends. Um, and, and we've talked, uh, I think, on reading lessons before about uh, it depends house to house how much, you know, direct contact between the art department and the um, authors there are, you know, and that's it's kind of a philosophy of that the, the publisher and the creative director and the house like, kind of all decide. So, you know, it, it depends. So if there's authors listening, um, you know, how much interaction you have directly with your art department depends. Um, I tend to like to have a lot. Of, of direct interaction with my authors, but whether you have a lot of uh, interaction w- with your art department directly or not, um, if there are things that you care about um, and you really want them, especially if they don't cost more money, like if you love deckled edges and you want every one of your books to have deckled edges, or you hate deckled edges, and you don't want any of your books to have deckled edges. I mean, just talk to your editor, you know, like we absolutely always try to take author preference into account. Um, sometimes there are things that, you know, cost more money and we don't want to, it's not so much that a publisher doesn't want to spend money on your book. It's that, and again, this is a deep, you know, issue, you know, not issue, but this is just deeper than we have time for going into like how books are accounted for and everything, but, um, in finance, but the more money is spent on your book package, the printing, the special effects, all that stuff, the more money it costs to make that book, um, the 
more time it's going to take for that book to earn past what it costs to make and then get money back to you as the author. So it's not always that like every book is accounted against itself. So, you know, it's not that the book isn't worth that. And I think that's what authors fear. Like I don't, my book, is it worth foil or my book, is it worth this or something like that? And that's not the issue at all. We're trying to guesstimate exactly what the best use of money on your book cover or interior, whatever it is, is going to be to be able to sell the most amount of books. You know, like it, it's, it's a shifting sand, but what we're trying to do is, you know, make your book as attractive as possible to sell the most copies as possible, but not put an unfair burden on that book. You know, yeah. if I had a debut author and we piled, you know, just so much money in special effects, fancy papers and printed end papers, all that stuff onto a book, it would be longer for that author to be make to start making royalties. So, you know, it's not that your book isn't worth it or anything like that. It's just, it might not be the most economical use of bang for your buck. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. Um, in art departments, like you can throw a ton of effects at something, but is it going to make a difference? Is that spot gloss going to make a difference for the design? Will this look that much better with foil on it? You don't want to just willy nilly use um, effects for, you know, not a lot of, bang, I don't know, bang for your buck. Yeah. <laughs> no, I totally, so, so it seems, it seems like, um, a lot of this stuff is kind of like reverse engineered. So a lot of the interior stuff all stems from the genre of the book, the cover of the book. So it all matches how long the book is. So it seems like these, these choices happen after other choices are made about the book. Yeah. A lot of things come directly from the beginning of the book too. Like editors will say to us, Oh, well there's, you know, like I said before, there's five point of view characters and we'd like a chapter icon for each one. So that's part of the concept of the book or whether a book has a map or not, honestly has more to do with the author than anything else. Um, especially in the, the fantasy space. If it, some authors have maps worked out and we're happy to have them re-illustrated and, and put them in there because readers love them. And some authors do not want a map in there have just don't, not that they don't care, but like either have a reason not to have a map in there or it's just not something that's important to them or they feel is important to the experience. So then we don't put a map in it. Um, you know, things like that. So couple, a couple other questions. Um, so people, there's so many font questions. People are so obsessed with fonts. <laughs> people are wondering if publishers own certain fonts. Cause I know, uh, we were talking about when we were prepping for this episode that my publisher Hanover Square Press definitely has one particular font that they use for like all their galleys. It was using yeah. Lady from the Black Lagoon. It was using a bunch of what? other, um, other things. Does Orbit or do most publishers have like a handful that they, they, they're, that are like their go-tos? Yeah. For, for interiors, for sure. Um, and yes, to, to back up a bit, every fonts are licensed. So as opposed to a person just, you know, downloading fonts for free off the internet and using them for I don't know, greeting cards or whatever, um, companies absolutely have to pay for and license fonts. And we are very careful that um, rogue fonts are not coming in from freelancers or things like that, because there have been many cases of, of font houses, and rightfully so, this is their hard work, um, going in and being like, well, you know, you guys didn't have a license for this font and you used it on X amount of books and you owe us X amount of money and, and retro. So we're very careful to just like artwork, you have to license artwork to be on covers. Um, and rightfully so, this is how artists make their money. You know, you pay for usage. So anyway, yes, there are absolutely fonts that um, publishers 
uh, use and default to on the interiors, again, because it just makes everybody's life easier. You know, like an Orbit book will feel like an Orbit book, or like you said, a Hanover Square book will will feel like a Hanover Square book. What's, what's interesting so much as a designer is most people, even if they're thinking about these font questions, don't realize, if you're not a designer, you don't realize how much fonts work on you subconsciously. Like when you look at a font, and this is what I, I teach a lot in uh, when, I'm, when I'm teaching book design uh, to folks, the font you pick absolutely it's like the subliminal messaging of design people usually again if you're not a professional do not look at fonts and say oh this font is making me feel like this is retro this font is making me feel like this is elegant this font is making me feel literary or commercial or older or younger but the second you see a font it's it's priming your subliminal kind of subconscious uh it's giving you a ton of messages about that book um without you even consciously thinking about it. Um, so that's that's the power of fonts. And again, those fonts that you use on the inside are not only about look and feel, they're also about legibility. They're also about, um, you know, it's so subtle, but the, the pointiness of a serif can make something feel more anxious or can make something feel uh, more comfortable or, you know, it's so, so, so subtle. I could talk about this, literally fonts. I mean, maybe we should just do a, a whole font no, episode. No, people are extremely into, into fonts. Yeah. And um, the it's it's so subtle and it's so quick and it's so unconscious that fonts are really how we uh, do most of our positioning you know, especially in, in, especially in in the genre world, there are fonts that are so obviously like they just say fantasy to people, you know, there are fonts that are so overused to a point really. Um, and I'm guilty of that too, because they just scream fantasy to people, even though if you saw them in the list, you wouldn't necessarily look at it and say, oh, that looks fantasy. But as soon as they see it on a cover, they're like, oh, that's a fantasy book, you know? Gotcha. Um, so final question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> listeners were very excited about this. I can talk about this stuff. Often we do. Uh, <laughs> I'm very spoiled as an author that I, my best friend knows all of this stuff and does all this stuff for a living. Um, so someone wants to know, are there any interior design trends that are hot right now? Things that you're excited about? Anything like new and, and changing? It seems like something that a world that wouldn't change very much, but it's, um, I'm guessing that it does. Well, Yes. I think the trend is that there is more and more personalization, I would say. Not personalization, but like personalization per book or book individualization um, happening. And that has been a trend that has been happening since ebooks happened. So once ebooks started getting popular and the interior design of them kind of gets erased, uh, you know, people can consume stories without buying a physical book. So why would they want to buy a physical book? They want to buy a physical book because, I mean, again, granted, aside, some people just like reading an ebook and some people like reading in print. But the reason, since ebooks are cheaper and easier, what the trend has been has been to make the print books more differentiated from that. So they're not generic. Um, you know, they're not quickie. You know, they, they have more and more design in them to make them covetable as an object, you know, that you want to keep. So it's not a secret that um, mass market paperbacks declined greatly 
uh, in the face of ebooks becoming more popular because that was the quote unquote default or least expensive kind of um, least designed format. And again, there are certainly plenty of mass market paperbacks out there, but you could see if you go back in, in history and look at book sales, as ebooks rise, more and more books uh, that would have been mass market paperback go to trade paperback because it's a more collectible, long-term kind of uh, format. And people feel nicer about, it feels more collectible, you know, um, things like that. So the trend interiorly is also to put more art inside, to, to do things like, um, you know, colored end papers when you can. Uh, the collectible market. So special editions, you look at things like Illumicrate, all the subscription boxes. And again, this is stuff that happens in genre, but it also happens in mainstream. Um, publishers like the Folio Society, things like that, these special editions of, of already loved books, um, popular books getting reissued over and over again, has really become a much bigger part of the market uh, because people want to you know, they could have the disposable version, you know, the ebook kind of version that lives virtually. But if they're going to buy the print version, they want the really nice print version. The The difficulty for uh, a front list designer, so somebody putting out new books uh, as well as backlist, is people are willing to spend a lot of money for a very fancy edition of a book they already know they like. But you have to be careful not... Um, making a new book. So like a debut author or a first book in series or a new book coming out. Um, you want to make it feel special and like an art object that somebody wants, but you don't want again to burden it with so many costs of production that people don't take a chance on it. Yeah. Um, so balancing that it's very easy to do a special edition of a backlist book. It's a little harder to make something, you know, feel special. That's a front list. So again, you do things that are quote unquote costless. So adding, uh, art to the inside or, you know, things like that. If it's art that's already been done for the cover and you're just repeating it or using it more widely is something that doesn't cost the publisher any more money. It just costs us a little work uh, and we're happy to do it, you know? So I think you're going to see that happening more and more. Um, I think authors, just just people in general are more aware of things like fonts and ornaments and things and they're they're clamoring for that. So I think, you know, you'll see, you'll see more and more of that. I think authors... The more that authors ask for that stuff at the front end or thinking about it while they're writing their book, um, you'll see more and more of that come through. I mean, I think we were talking about headbands at some mm -hmm. point and we didn't mention headbands here, but they, they cracked me up because they're like the mock turtlenecks of, of book publishing. <laughs> so what a headband is, is if you take a hardcover and you look at the top of it, like the top of the pages, like the actual top uh, view, all the way at the binding end, there's a little strip of color. There's a little bit of fabric there and it's called a headband. And in the old days of bookbinding, when we were bookbinding stuff by hand before mass producing, um, which I'm very intimate with because my senior portfolio for School of Visual Arts when I graduated was a hand-bound hardcover book. Um, and it, it's very hard to do. <laughs> if anybody has done hand binding, it's it's very exact and very intricate and very hard and and wonderful when it works. Um, horrible when it doesn't. But um, anyway, so I'm, I'm, you need that strip of fabric. There's a whole strip of fabric 
against the entire, you know, block of pages to, to help hold that glue. That's what glues the book into a book, you know, kind of the pages into the hardcover of a book. But these days, like glue is so much better and the way things are, are held together, the most of the strength of most of what's holding the books into the hardcover case is the end papers and the, and the glue there. So, um, you know, you don't really need a headband, so you could just get rid of it, but a book doesn't look like a book without it, even though you're kind of not noticing that it's there at all. Go look at your hardcover. Oh, you I know. always, I, I <laughs> notice mine, but I, again, like you are my best friend. I feel like I notice yeah, more, more particular things. So, so on a hardcover now, you'll see this, um, you know, you'll see this little strip of color and you'd think that, cause it's the same at the top and the bottom. You'd think that it goes all the way through. It does not, it goes like a quarter of it. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. It's just, uh, yeah. So it's just like a weird little, or I guess a mock turtleneck is the best way to put it. Yeah, 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 exactly. It just, like, stops at your collarbone. <laughs> <laughs> like, you remember in the 2000s when everyone was doing that thing where they would wear, like, a lacy uh, tank top underneath their shirts? Yeah, and then exactly And then right. finally some people got wise to it and then just put a little triangle of lace into the uh, <laughs> into the shirts to look like there was a, a, t or a tank top underneath. Oh, right. That's amazing. Um, and that's what I mean. That's a holdover from hand-binding books that we don't really need. I mean, trade paperbacks don't have them, yeah. you know. Um, but it makes it but, feel like a book. It makes it feel like a book. So, but, you know, again, most authors don't think about this or care about this, but you can pick the color if you cared, you know. Like, if, if I get an email from an author and they were like, I really think it would be cool if all of my books through the whole series had the same color headband. I'd be like, awesome. I'm so, it's so cool that you thought about that. I would be <laughs> Every, you know, I think it's just stuff that a lot of the stuff is options that authors don't, um, don't know to ask don't think about. Yeah. Well, I hope so. if there's any of any authors listening that they now know that they can ask for cool things again, I, I do, um, because I have the knowledge thanks to you. Um, oh my God, I just had a vision of all the creative directors and publishing like yelling. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, again, some things it's hard to know. There are, there are many things that, uh, an art department or a publisher could do that are literally, you know, don't cost any money, but look like they might. So it's, it's hard to know what yeah. would or wouldn't cost money. So, but I mean, again, it doesn't hurt, hurt to, to ask, exactly. like if it's possible, you know, um, especially if it's something that, that deepens the reader experience, yeah. like, you know, icons. I have a lot of authors that ask for, you know, chapter icons or separations between parts. Can we do something here, you know, uh, to make it feel like a different section or, um, a lot of times there's books, again, this happens in fantasy a lot that, uh, you know, there's a book within a book. Yeah. So the, when you're reading the book within the book or pages of the book within the book, that page will be designed different. So it looks like a different book inside the book. You know, we do that. Uh, so before we go, do you have any books that are coming out right now that whose interiors you want to brag about a little bit or anything cool things you guys are doing? Ooh, oh, my God. Um, for again, I've been at Orbit 13 years, but speaking to how uh, much more demand there is for special editions, um, we've done more special editions this year, I think, than we have have period. Um, so I did a 10th anniversary edition of Leviathan Wakes, the first Expanse book that's super fancy and had like, if you see this book in the store, it screams at you because the the page staining, the, so the page edges, uh, it's called, you know, 
color, sprayed edges is what they're called. But the, the edges of the book are our color and they're bright magenta paint. Yes, it's funny. I went into a Barnes & Noble when the day Girly Drinks came out to sign books. And I remember texting you about this because the first book I saw when I walked in on one of the tables was the new fancy edition of Levi- Leviathan Wakes. And I was like, that's Lauren's book. <laughs> and that was really fun because it was a collaboration between uh, a fan artist who had done these like very minimalist kind of posters for the expanse and and we we hired him to Jay Clark we hired him to kind of you know uh work with those posters and make them into a cover um so I, I hope we keep doing more of those I think it was very well received but but you know foil the whole because it's a special edition so you can charge a little more money you know people want it yeah um because they really like these fans so you could make we did colored ends we printed on we printed the original art for Levi the first Leviathan Wakes book by Daniel Dachiu on the inside jacket so you could flip the jacket if you wanted to we did so many cool things in that book that was fun and then the, the monster project was again I mentioned a few times the last wish illustrated which is the first it's i mean it's short stories so whether it's it's not the first book in the series but it uh the witcher book that the first season of the netflix show was kind of mostly based on um it's seven short stories it wrapped inside like a a holder kind of framework story and uh we did a illustrated edition um, that had a different illustrator do an illustration for each story and uh, it's super fancy and like the hardcover's great. And that one was fun because on the case, so under the jacket, uh, we did a foil stamp on the front of the cover. Usually you just do it on the spine. It does cost more to put it on the front or the back or, you know, foil uh, other places, but we did a whole quote on the front cover and I had never done that before. So when you take off the jacket, it's not another piece of art stamped in. It's, it's a quote and I won't give it away, but it's a fun one. Very, very um, sexy. Yeah, that was, those were super fun. And the, I think if you're talking about the next kind of advancement in bookish technology, which I guys <laughs> love, um, what we're doing is we have, so with Google, there's a program called Google Lens that's augmented reality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you look at uh, a number of Orbit books, we've been doing kind of a class, like debut class every year the last couple of years. So like the new authors of 2020, the new authors of 2021. Um, And we do cover animations in augmented reality. So if you see the physical book or it actually works on a picture of a book, if you're looking at a picture on the internet, but if you hold your, your phone up, um, and you have the Google app and you look through the camera in the Google app, it pops up a, a cover animation. And we've been doing that for a couple of years now, and they're really fun and people love them. Um, and we've been doing author interviews on the back cover, so if you flip the book over, it's, it's very cool. But for the very first time, we've done an augmented reality cover or illustration animation for every single illustration inside. So all that of the full page. so fucking cool. <laughs> oh my God, it's so cool. And And I don't know that anybody else has done that yet, so I'm very excited about that to hit. That's not on sale till... Oh, it's coming up December 14th. I think it's on sale, uh, 15th that week. So like two weeks from now, maybe exactly when this, this is airing. I'm not sure. Maybe it's already out, but, um, we will be follow orbit books because we'll be posting a lot of videos of, of doing that in action. And it's so much fun. And the artists are so excited. That's very exciting. Well, folks should be following. If you're listening to the show, you should be following orbit books anyways, because they are just crushing the the cover world obviously i'm very biased but uh (laughs) orbit book covers are just incredible lauren thank you so much for waking up early on this or i guess it's not so early for you but getting up on sunday morning to talk to us about this and answering all the glasser questions you are the best as always 
<laughs> it's my pleasure. And um, I was a little afraid because I haven't been on in a while that I was like the Snuffleupagus of reading well. <laughs> you are the Snuffleupagus. Sean is the Wilson. <laughs> you are the Snuffleupagus. You mention me all the time, but I don't actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to, yeah, we need to have you come back on so everyone can. There's a few. I am happy to come on anytime. I'm more than happy to do a whole font questions and answers. Maybe we, episodes. honestly, after people. this, we might have to. Um, <laughs> thank you, Lauren. <laughs> okay. Thanks for having me. Now let's solve a bookish problem from one of our listeners. Allison writes in, I love listening to your podcast because I feel it helps normalize talking about what you're reading in casual conversations. I find the more I do this in my own life, the easier it is to find my people. My dilemma has to do with reading fiction as part of a personal research project. Most of the time it's great, but if you're not enjoying the book, it starts to feel like homework. I'm really interested in the social and cultural history of 1920s Berlin, and I've started writing my own fiction within that setting. However, I'm finding a few of the novels written in that time period a real slog to get through. They feel like essential texts I have to read to understand my setting, and I struggle to reconcile that with my resolution to abandon books I'm not enjoying. But if I give up on it, I might miss out on historical details or important social themes. Have you encountered this dilemma, and do you have any tips on getting through unenjoyable fiction for the sake of knowledge, or is it even worth it? Thanks for the podcast and your help. My wheelhouse is obviously 1920s Berlin, (laughs) mousy heroines with hidden darkness, mother-daughter immigration stories, Jewish-American identity, and characters trapped in bizarre existential prisons that that have their own internal logic. Wow. Wow. What a specific... So we specific. love a specific wheelhouse Bizarre on this show. Bizarre existential prisons that have their own internal logic. Name what is a book in that category? I couldn't tell you. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, uh, Allison's going to have to write in and give us some recommendations. Please do. All right. So, Bria, what do you think Allison should do? So, I mean, I think Mallory and I can both safely say we have encountered this problem. Uh, because we're often doing research. I'm often reading things just for research. Um uh, like, especially there's always these, always these books that people will be like, oh, you're writing about that thing? Have you read this? Because that's going to be, it's going to somehow dictate your world. You need to know what came before you. And I do totally believe in that, that you should sort of know the world you're entering into uh, to an extent. I mean, I think probably Mallory has a different take on this because I often I'm doing creative stuff, which I think Allison is doing too, not nonfiction. I'm doing um, narrative stuff. So I try not to read. Sometimes I stay away from stuff specifically because I'm worried it'll like tell me too much and I'll end up um, uh, like copying things by accident. But anyway, um, so I'll say this. First of all, take to heart. If something is boring. Dump it. It's it's good to know. (laughs) No, I'm saying it's good to know because then you should know that you shouldn't write something like that. Oh, so it's you know boring, what? Yeah, that's a good idea. It's good to know what like, the boring can, things are. No, it's good to know and to call out what is boring. I will say for me, I do try to give things a shot. I'll read a chapter or two. But if it's so boring that I'm like, ugh, this is a slog and like it's not really going to make that big of a difference, I'm going to just find a synopsis on the internet and move on. Because if these are important books and they have important themes – Someone has already, some grad student somewhere has written a paper on them that you can go read. <laughs> now, is that going to be God boring? God bless <laughs> grad students. These papers might, but it may be boring. You may end up reading nonfiction that is also boring. Um, so I know we always tell you to dump it. And I, and I think it's probably different depending on what you're doing. But I would say 
find the information you need to feel like you feel secure in your work. But I guarantee you as a person who like your wheelhouse is already these things, you kind of already probably know the themes and the historical moments, uh, like these details that you're talking about. Like, I think you probably, I think Allison already knows these, don't you? Allison's already done the work and looked into these. And I'm going to do a real hard pivot here and say, first of all, we want you to not write a boring book. So like, don't, you don't have to read all these boring books, but because I don't want you to write a book like that. I want you to take the things, you know, read the stuff about that time period that you think will be relevant to what you're writing and move on because, and I don't want to call you out here, Allison, but sometimes (laughs) we're all doing research in order to distract ourselves from the work we need to be doing. And is this maybe the case? Could it be that you already know all these themes? You already know the historical stuff. And if you don't, go find stuff about that. Go do that research. Read the Wikipedia page. Do whatever you need to do to find out this specific information. But I think at the end of the day, you need to get on with your creative work. And don't let things stop you because you can sit here and slog through this book or you can start on your creative project and find information about that book in a much easier way. So... I guess if if we're giving a specific, I'm going to say to try these books. I think you should try if you feel like they're relevant to your work, but I would not spend so much time getting bogged down in them because you can really spend a long time trying to read a boring ass book when you should be writing your own really great book if that is the goal. Because I think Allison already has all this information and probably knows it. Don't you think if this is like Allison's wheelhouse, I think that Allison probably already knows these historical themes that she's talking about. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue, again, I'm obviously a nonfiction writer, so I'm coming at it from a different angle, but I just sure. don't think, I don't think she needs to read, I mean, it, maybe maybe one or two, but I don't think she needs to read them en masse, you know? No. You can get, you, I, I, I think um, you can give them a quick browse to check them out, but if you're, you're going to get more knowledge, obviously, from nonfiction on the subject, you should, I just think Allison shouldn't be reading fiction books to get to get knowledge about this time period, uh-huh. um, even nar- um, you know even narrative nonfiction will help her out more. I mean, because uh, uh, n- novelists take liberties, so you so Allison can't be sure that the knowledge that she's getting from these books is is real, is accurate. It might just be something that the author did for this particular book. Um, I assume she's reading books from this time. Is that what she said? No, she's like about she, the t- like during just about this time. the time, just about yeah. the time. So novels written. No, she says I'm finding a few novels in that time period. So she's but reading even, ones from the 1920s. Yeah, but even then, like, sure. it's still not, you can't be, you can't be sure that the the, the writers are writing, th- are de- depicting things accurately. If you're looking for information and you get bored, watch a documentary about that time period. Even watch a feature film because that will give you, a, a, you know, uh, a film can watching a film can help you get sort of like the ambiance, the sort of texture of of things a little bit better. Uh, some of the you know the, that historical flavor. I just don't think you need to read unless you know maybe if the one of the characters in Allison's book that she's writing is reading this particular book. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have to read that. But other than that, I just don't think. Um, I think we're both in agreement that Allison does not need to read that many of these books. Me, I think you you did a you said a great thing. If you can find a Wikipedia article or a summary about what's going on in these books, but you don't have to read all of them, especially I, if you're trying to get knowledge. Uh, 
and there's probably some really great like micro histories about this time period, about whatever historical thing. Again, some grad student in American studies wrote a paper about, you know, the chairs they're sitting in or something. And so you can always find these things um, without reading the books that I think I agree with Mallory. It's probably going to inform you a bit more um, unless you love these books. And then I'd say read them. But I, I don't I mean, we're not telling you not to do the work. I'm just saying that sometimes the work can look a little bit different. Yeah, I just think, again, I'm I'm a stickler for this because I'm a I'm a historian. <laughs> I'm a nonfiction author. You're not go- if you're looking for accurate information about the time. I mean, that would be think about it as if uh, someone wanted to find out about what was going on in 2021 and was reading novels that came out this year about this right. time period. You would get a little bit, but there's it's nothing compared to a, a nonfiction book that you're going to get when it comes to knowledge. Or, you know, one book might help you kind of get um, the way that some pers- a character might have felt about living in that time period, which is something that's harder to get. But if you're looking for straight up information about what people were wearing, what how much things cost, what people, what, what, what people did, you know, like I'm trying to think of a, of a book that came out this year. Um, like about just this year. A, yeah. Like like the, sen- a, the sentence, I, the sentence, the, there you we, go. like that book is all about things that happened in the past year. And it's and it does cover like so much about the um uh, uh the pandemic and the um and Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. But it also has a ghost in it. So like yeah, I just that's don't what know. I mean. It's not. Like, <laughs> it's just not. It's not going to. I don't think that. I I think Allison is doing extra work that is not. Mm. Uh, she's working hard, but. Not necessarily, maybe not, this, the hard work is is uh, not going as far as she wants it to. Yeah, Allison, she's, she's expending I think energy saying, for no reason. Mallory and I are saying we want to read your book. We would like yeah, to read your we book. Do. So, like, write that book. Go go write it. And I know that's hard to do, but I think go write it. And if you don't feel like you know some of this stuff, like Mallory said, like like you know, watch a documentary, figure, read a paper about it, read the Wikipedia page about it. It's going to give you a lot of information. People have done research on these books if they are these essential texts. They have, there yes. has been work done on them for sure. Absolutely. So if you want us to solve your reader problem, or in this case, your writer problem, send it to readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank the wonderful mods who run our Facebook group and Chrissy and Rachel who moderate our Goodreads page. Remember, we have that sweet ass store, our new Void March store. We love it so much. Uh, you can get shirts and totes and stickers to laminate and turn into bookmarks. We just love the store so much. We wear our stuff from it all the time. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for that. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, uh, other places. I don't think you can review on Spotify, but there are many other places that we are that you can review. It really is great for us. It helps us reach more readers and reach more advertisers and seem impressive. And like people are always like, oh, so many reviews. Got to check this place out. <laughs> Got to check this podcast out. Uh, if you want to email us, you can go to readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Reading G Podcast, on Instagram at Reading Glasses Podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for reading. Thanks for reading. Thanks for reading.